when children's menus first appeared around the turn of the last century, I would have assumed that whatever was on those menus would have been kind of that day's equivalent of chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. In other words, whatever was considered kind of a treat and super palatable for kids, that's what they would have been serving. What I discovered was it was completely the opposite. When my TEDx talk was canceled in 2020, the topic was the kids' meal revolution. I ended up releasing that talk myself, and I am a huge proponent of kid food and adult food being the same thing. So I don't even think that kid food, in big, huge air quotes, should even exist. My guest today is absolutely on the same page as me, author and activist Bettina Elias. Seagull is here to talk with us about the problems with our food, the way that our vocabulary and our culture really affects the way we feed our kids. Let's jump right in. Bettina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We are just absolutely on the same page on a lot of this. (laughs) Bettina is a former lawyer, so I gotta say, graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School, smart as a whip, which means She's done the research and we can listen to her, but she shifted her job after 10 years to freelance writing. And I can't wait to hear where this passion for food reform came from. She's super famous. She's been featured all over in the New York Times, the Doctors, the Today Show, all sorts of press like the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Parents, etc. And in 2015, the Family Circle named Bettina one of the country's 20 most influential moms, which is so awesome. Most importantly, (laughs) always, mom of two kids. And I know that's where your heart went and started a lot of this. But Bettina, I got to hear more of your background. How did you go from intellectual property law to school food and kid food? Well, I think you did put your finger on it. It really, I think, is because I became a mom. I can't imagine I would have gone down the otherwise. But basically what happened was I actually retired from practicing law just because I really did not enjoy the profession. It wasn't a great fit for me. I had just had our first child. It was a good kind of off-ramp from the profession. And so for a while, I was stay-at-home mom and focusing entirely on my kids. And then when they were like around preschool, early elementary, I did start freelance writing but not in this area. I was just, you know, taking any kind of magazine assignment I could get, you know, personal essays, things like that. And then when my kids were in, at this point, both in elementary and we're here in Houston, they were in public school. I was asked if I would go to this meeting that was a new committee being formed to get parents input about our school food. And this was in 2010. And this was before all the improvements that we've seen, fortunately, in school food. And I went to that meeting and I was just very, very interested in what I was learning. I was a little bit dismayed by a lot of the things I was learning and seeing. And I think that coupled with being a parent of two kids, having all kinds of struggles, feeding them well that I never anticipated when I first had kids. And then the stuff I was learning about school food, it all kind of came together. And I was like, you know, just I'm just going to start this blog, the lunch tray almost just as a little lark while I'm doing the other freelance writing. And that just became life throws you curveballs, that just became this sort of intense focus for me and led to all kinds of stuff, ultimately culminating in writing kid food. Wow. I would love to hear sort of personally, because I mean, I think we talk about like healthy eating journeys, you know, on one end would be like ramen noodles, frozen pizza, McDonald's every day. The other end is like homemade sourdough and just like tons of different (laughs) rolls. There's all sorts of places on the path in between. You don't have a 
professional background in nutrition, but where no. were you like when your kids were in preschool and early L as far as like what you were trying to feed them? First of all, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist. I'm very clear about that in the book. You know, mm-hmm. I'm talking about these issues really more from a societal level and a policy level and a cultural level, but certainly not telling you exactly what to feed your kids. But in my case, I think a lot of this really started with my mom and how she raised me in the 1970s. She was really a little bit, I think, ahead of her time. She was an organic gardener. She was reading all kinds of books about healthy eating. And our diet really changed in my childhood. I remember my earliest memories were a lot of highly processed food around the house. And then I kind of fast forward and it's like the whole wheat bread and the bean sprouts and, you know, all that stuff. And so she had like a kind of a big shift and it really changed the way our whole family ate. So when I had kids, I felt pretty confident about my knowledge about nutrition and good eating and, and cooking and all of that. So I didn't really think that I was, that feeding my children healthily was going to be much of a challenge. And then I think like a lot of parents in America, even when you have the education and the resources, you know, I'm fortunate to be able to buy the food that I want. And even with all of that, it is an uphill battle, I think, for a lot of parents. And it certainly was for me. And, you know, I'm talking about certainly all the junk food that comes at your kids outside your home that you may not expect, you know, teacher candy rewards and junkie snacks at soccer practice and all of that, you know, that I really didn't anticipate. But many of the issues related to me and my own home, like I did kind of fall a little bit into that kid food trap. You know, if if I was buying a lot of stuff at Whole Foods, but because it was at Whole Foods and had the clean label, I just kind of let myself slide into those kid food items that I think really weren't doing my kids any favors in terms of shaping their palates and making them more open to healthier flavors and textures. So there was that. I wasn't expecting my kids to exhibit any kind of picky eating, but that turned out to be a challenge. So that was really kind of my journey. And that was part of what also motivated me to start the lunch tray was I wanted to just connect with other parents, other moms, particularly to ask, are you having these struggles and what can we do about it? You know, I love the fact that your healthy food journey actually started when you were a kid, partly because that's what we advocate for. Here at Kids Cook Real Food, I tell parents all the time, man, if we can get our kids on board with healthy eating and with the skills and capacities to do it for themselves, they won't have to spend their early 20s figuring out, oh my gosh, well, how do I feed myself? Right? Or like exactly things in their family. Not that it made life like perfectly easy for you because kids will be kids and they're always surprising. But I think I think it's really telling that you kind of knew how you wanted to eat which I believe gives you the space, time, and energy to do things that are important, like advocating for a change at the systemic level. It's amazing. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that one of the things I talk about a lot in kid food is what can we do to empower kids, to get kids invested in their own healthy eating? I talk about everything from the importance of teaching cooking and obviously exposing them to healthy food in their in their childhood, all of that modeling it. But I even talk about almost trying to in many ways immunize them against the food culture and particularly like the influx of advertising and marketing that they're subject to. They can be somewhat insulated from those messages or at least be able to analyze them more critically as they get older. Because again, there's so many forces in our culture and our society that push all of us away from healthier food. And so, you know, if kids don't have that knowledge, just as you said, in that investment, they're really at the mercy of corporations, restaurants, you know, convenience, uh-huh. you know, all of the things that drive us toward more highly processed food. 
For sure. And although you're known as a superstar with school lunch food in particular, Kids Food, the book, takes a little bit broader scope, which I like. And we're filming this in the midst of the global pandemic. And so never has there been a more strange time to even figure out what is school food? Like kids aren't even going to school half the time. So I'm glad that Kid Food expands and address that. And I have to read what Alice Waters said. She's the founder of the Edible Schoolyard Project, huge name in the real food you know, world. She says, with meticulous research and easy conversational prose, Siegel makes an irrefutable case for changing the way we think about so-called kid food and why we must transform the broken food system that feeds our children. So let's define some things here. Bettina, what, what do you see as kid food as the world sees it, and then some of the shifts that you'd prefer to see us make, especially in our vocabulary? Well, so one challenge when I sat down to write the book is to define for myself, what do I mean by kid food? What are we talking about? You know, of course, I think any parent listening gets it. We're talking about these these kind of cultural constructs that we have that are completely artificial. You know, we've sort of hit on certain foods, they're beige, they're bland, they're cheesy, they're fried, you know, that are kid food. And you it, you see this iterated in so many different contexts, our school food menus, you know, even though school food nutritionally may have moved forward a great deal, and that's wonderful, often the menus are still reinforcing for kids the idea that these are their food. They cannot break out of that, you know, narrow box. More whole greens packaged as pizza, corn dogs, and tacos. Pizza. Exactly. Tacos. Right. Exactly. So great that it's more whole grains, but still, you're kind of teaching kids a certain way of eating. And then the real trouble is, they don't know that the pizza they're getting at school is whole wheat, predominantly whole wheat crust, or that the cheese might be, you know, reduced fat or whatever. And then when they go to their corner pizza shop, they're just getting a message at school that pizza every day might be fine. Mm. So there's that. This is so fascinating. I wanted to know, how did we used to define kids food? Like, has this changed? So one thing that I examined in the first chapter of the book which was really, I think, my favorite one to write, was about the history of the children's menu. And I very much am indebted to a historian who, who I talk about in the book who really dove into the subject before me. But what was so interesting was when children's menus first appeared around the turn of the last century, I would have assumed that whatever was on those menus would have been kind of that day's equivalent of chicken nuggets and mac and cheese. In other words, whatever was considered kind of a treat and super palatable for kids. That's what they would have been serving. What I discovered was it was in completely the opposite. The way moms used to view restaurant food was it's very sophisticated. It's kind of spiced, you know, in a sophisticated way and not suitable for children. And so the way restaurateurs got them in the door was by saying, we're going to create this especially healthy menu for your kid. And that way you'll feel comfortable dining together with your child. And so it was so fascinating to see that kid food in the early 1900s was the complete exact opposite of how we think of it today. It was looking out for kids' health. You know, we're going to give them foods with, you know, this is however you feel about this. You know, this was the dietetic advice of the day. Lots of dairy and vegetables and simple, bland foods. You know, it's just so different from if you walk today into a restaurant and look at a kid's menu. It's more, we just want to entertain kids. We want to please them, but we don't really care so much about their nutrition. Sure. When did the shift happen? So I think it really mirrors larger societal shifts. And this is maybe more than we can cover in one answer, but I do talk about it in the book. I mean, I think it really mirrors the way the whole American way of eating changed Mm. in so many different ways. 
And I think also, I mean, this is something I talk about in the book too. I think we do need to think a little bit about our parenting style. That has changed, you know, unequivocally over generations. And while in many ways, I I think it's wonderful that we're not like authoritarian, you'll clean your plate kind of parents anymore. I do think the research shows very clearly parents as a whole have ceded a lot of control to children about what they eat. Like we give kids a lot more say in our grocery shopping. We give kids a lot more say in what we put down on the dinner table. And the problem is kids don't have the knowledge that we do. And so they're given the choice between pasta every night and and something else. Of course, they're going to choose that. And so by giving kids so much autonomy, we may not be doing them a favor. And I think that also is one reason why children's menus have made the shift. Yeah. So we've talked about children's menus. You touched a little bit upon sort of packaged, processed kid food, all the fancy packaging, even at Whole Foods. Are there other places that we need to look out for so-called kid food? I mean, as I said, I really think it's so pervasive. I think Mm -hmm. we see it really in any context where kids are being fed. I think adults quite often fall back on those foods. Again, school menus is a great example, daycare menus. And I think they do it for so many reasons. They're not bad reasons. It's just that it all kind of adds up. And so our children's day is kind of shaped by this construct. And it can give them, as we're talking about, some troubling assumptions about what they're supposed to eat. There actually have been surveys. I, I cite in the book a survey. It actually took place in Canada but there's no reason to think it would be different here sure. where they ask kids, you know, what is kid food and what is adult food and kid food was like all the things you'd imagine. And then adult food was with things like fruits and vegetables and meat and fish. And that's terrible. You know, we want kids to feel that the array of food is their food. We want them to sit and join us at the table and we should all be eating the same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as much as I like to focus on the positive, let's talk about the risk. What is the risk of allowing our kids to make perhaps too many choices when it comes to what they eat as they're just learning and buying into this cultural construct of kid food. Another piece that you know I didn't mention is, especially when we're talking about packaged kid food, mm-hmm. a huge element of the marketing is this idea of like fun and entertainment and excitement. When you think about it, how is a kid's yogurt different from an adult yogurt? Or how is a kid's frozen meal that different from an, an adult frozen meal? One issue is there tends to be more sugar when we're Mm -hmm. marketing to kids. But really then after that, it becomes all about the packaging, the marketing, the cartoon character. So we're sort of selling kids this notion that their food has to be this kind of like entertaining, exciting experience, which really is sapping the joy out of eating just healthy, delicious food, you know, without those sort of externalities. But at any rate, I want to be really clear. It's not like I'm condemning pasta and chicken nuggets and tacos and, you know, corn dogs, those are all foods that we can all enjoy in moderation. What I'm really focusing on in the book, and I open the book with an introductory note to make this very clear, what I'm really concerned about is highly processed food or what what others call ultra processed food. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I won't go into the specific definition, but it's, we're really talking about food that has been taken to the far end of the processing spectrum. Processing can be drying food and cooking food and peeling a carrot is processing. We're talking about the stuff way at the other end of the spectrum. And if I had, you know, made this case 10 years ago, it might have sounded like, oh, you know, she's just kooky and is worried about words she can't pronounce in the ingredient list. There are now just a growing number of incredibly compelling studies showing a very clear correlation between diets high in ultra processed food and a whole host of diseases and obesity and, and those associated diseases. So we may not fully understand the mechanisms, but it's very clear that too much of that highly processed food really does have a negative 
impact on our health. And so that's what we're concerned about. And that's why it could be, you know, problematic to just throw open the pantry or throw open the supermarket and say to kids, here, what do you want? You know, we need certainly want to give kids choices, but it's important for parents to put some parameters around those choices. I love that. And thank you for calling out the research, too, that there is research that highly processed food is causing disease. Obesity, yes, but not just. Like I, I hear not parents who say, eh, my kid doesn't have a weight problem. Doesn't really, doesn't really matter yet. But I'm sure you would say, too, we're building one body. We got one body to work with here and we're going to have the same one when we're adults. Hey, parents and grandparents, do you wish that your kids would help out a little more around the house and maybe eat their vegetables? Let me tell you that knowing how to cut up produce is the key to making both of those happen. Our members' favorite cooking class year over year is our 10-minute knife skills and safety video. In that video, we teach kids ages 2 to teen how to hold a knife and how to hold the food. We use fun phrases like up and over soldier and hey, hey, out of the way that build a common vocabulary for your family to safely use knives, both with parent participation and later independently. It is an incredible skill for your kids to have. And you know what? I would like to give that training video to you for free. Just go to kidscookrealfood.com slash free knife skills. That's kidscookrealfood.com slash free knife skills. If you can't find it, just go to the homepage and click preview in the menu. It's right there all the time because we love building independence in the kitchen for kids. And I firmly believe that if you support real food, that means knife skills. Now back to the podcast. I literally don't use the word obesity in this book until chapter seven. Uh, And there are only like, you know, 10 chapters in the book. And that was a very conscious choice because I don't want parents to approach this topic through the lens of obesity because they'll do exactly what you just said, which is, well, my kid is lean, so I don't have to worry about this. And I actually wasn't sure when I sat down to write the book, is that true? You know, maybe if your child doesn't carry extra weight, maybe we don't need to worry about this. And so I talked to researchers, I looked at the data and there's no question, even if a child is visibly lean, if they're eating a diet that's low in essential nutrients, it's high in highly processed food, all kinds of things can be going on internally, emotionally, in terms of their, there's a host of factors where they can be negatively affected totally apart from weight. So to me, the childhood obesity crisis in this country, I'm not trying to minimize it. It's incredibly troubling and we need a course correction. But I think that childhood obesity is a symptom of a much larger problem, which is that the diet of American children across the board is really surprisingly poor, given that we're in one of the wealthiest countries, you know, on the planet. Mm. Well said. Just want to let that one sit yeah. for a minute. It's, it's not always what we see on the outside. You dug into a lot of data, talked to a lot of researchers, went into the history. I mean, actually, you've talked about a few surprising things, but was there anything else that really popped up for you that you didn't see coming in the research? Well, I mean, one thing that did surprise me, and it does touch on what we just talked about, is how quickly the diet of American children kind of takes a nosedive. Like, if you look at the data, their early diet tends to be pretty good. You know, it's formula or breast milk, and then it's typically like fruit and vegetable purees and cereals. But it's almost like as soon as they kind of join us at the table, as soon as they start to get exposed to what we call the standard American diet, it's really surprising and troubling how quickly the dietary quality, starting writ large across the nation, how quickly it kind of takes a nosedive. And I cite some 
data that's just shocking, like in terms of, you know, the, the most frequently eaten vegetable among, you know, a certain age group of toddlers is like potato chips, you know, that counts as a vegetable. So, you know, that's really troubling. And I think the other thing that surprised me was sugar consumption. You know, we all eat too much sugar, but what's really troubling is our kids are eating more sugar than any of us. And so it's almost the opposite of what we'd like to see. I mean, uh-huh. If we could, in a perfect world, our kids would be eating as healthfully as possible until adulthood and then maybe making their own choices. But in right. the, it's learning the other way around. Yeah. Right. But it's the other way around. Our kids are just inundated with sugar and then it starts to taper off, although it's still way too high as they approach young adulthood. So that was surprising and troubling. For sure. That's interesting that when you first said how quickly the food landscape changes, I kind of thought you meant on a timeline of history, but you mean in a timeline of an individual. Yeah very young and then the dietary quality sort of declines. It's amazing. Like I just go through the latest federal data, dietary data, and it just shows like how quickly the cookies and the chips and whatever start to work their way into our kids' daily diet and how little they're eating of the fruits and vegetables and, and the stuff we want them to be eating. Yes. Yes. It's interesting that you talked about the Canadian study where kids answered what is kid food and what is adult food. I'm guessing that even kids who probably eat well at home would answer via the cultural construct that fruits and I think are yes. Yeah. Yes, I think so. And that's really kind of troubling. And I think parents fall into that kid food trap too, because, you know, we're busy and we don't always even have time to cook. And when we do cook and you put it down the table and then your kids fusses and doesn't want it, like it's so easy to reach for the kid food, whether it is coming from Whole Foods or coming from your supermarket, it's easy to fall into that trap. It's pleasing to everyone. It's it diffuses conflict, you know, it's understandable yeah. why we do it. But I think shape our children's attitudes and palates in ways that might not serve them well in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm also with you working to change the way people define kids food and through the kids meal revolution, like I want to see restaurant kids menus ended. I want to see short order cooking and families with the nuggets yeah. and fries ended. The kids meals from fast food right in the backseat. We need to redefine yeah. those. I always say a kid's meal should be one that a kid has cooked. Where do you see that agency and the ability to have those skills in the kitchen fitting in with the whole paradigm shift that you're promoting? I think it is huge. I mean, if you think about it, it, you know, my analogy is if you don't teach your children how to cook and just some basic food literacy, it's like having them grow up right next to an ocean and not teaching them how to swim. You know, we're in a culture in which if you don't have that agency, and that's a perfect way of putting it, you are then at the mercy of big corporations that are making food for profit and not really necessarily for your health or restaurants, which again, want to bring you into the door with delicious food, but maybe it's not what you should be eating every day. Fast food restaurants, certainly problematic. And so you are at the mercy of these forces that are not really looking out for your long-term interests. And so to be able to cook just gives you that independence, that autonomy. It's cheaper typically. And also it's a pleasure. You know, I want, I would love kids to know the pleasure of, and the agency of I can make this and I can make it the way I want it. And I can serve it to friends and family. And that's a loving, wonderful thing to be able to do. I think there are just so many aspects of teaching children how to cook that are essential. Oh man, absolutely. So that's one practical step that parents can take to shift the paradigm of kid food. We've kind of talked about some of the problems, some of the culture. What are the solutions? What kind of tips would you give parents? Like, here's what you can do. So one of my chapters is 
specifically devoted to parent advocacy on this issue. Now, you know, right now in the middle of this pandemic, I think all of this is on hold and that's fine. Our lives have been upturned and I think these issues have taken a backseat. But, you know, when we resume normal life, which hopefully will be soon, I do want parents to feel empowered to advocate in all kinds of different environments, whether it's the soccer coach who is fine with Oreos and chips as the snack and what do you do about that? Or your fellow parents, Or what do you do about that teacher who's handing out candy rewards? I have 14 advocacy tips that come not just from me, but lots of other successful advocates. And I really want parents to feel like this is a place where they can comfortably speak up and band together and really make change. And I give examples of parents who really have succeeded in that regard. Another chapter in the book talks about things we could be doing as a society, like the big ticket stuff, you know, how we really could fix school food, what we really could be doing in terms of societal level issues ways we could curb all of this junk food advertising that reaches our kids through their TV and their smartphone and the computer. But just for right now, when we're living this very different life, to me, the pandemic, I won't even call it a silver lining, we won't say that, but one aspect of it is we are home, we can cook more, we are cooking more. And it's a great time to involve kids if you haven't. Because by necessity, we're home together and doing it. So this would be a really good time to have kids help you shape that menu in ways that you set the choices and involve them in it and use this time to let them experiment. I think that would be one excellent thing parents could be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think always through all time, the family is a microcosm of society and we're always in our own domain and our homes and should be focused on teaching our children. But it's accentuated. Now, because I do feel that, yeah, we feel like it's not the time for school food advocacy necessarily. And actually, it's a small win that really teachers aren't giving out food right now. (laughs) In our school, there's food, there's no one feeding our children. I was like, oh my gosh, I've been trying to do this for seven years. That's so interesting. Why? I believe there are no cupcakes for birthdays. (laughs) (laughs) That's so interesting. And I will say one thing about COVID that has been actually encouraging to me as an advocate is that I think a lot of families who weren't relying on the school food program have been woken up to how critically important that program is as a safety net because they've seen on the news, oh, school's Mm. closed, but suddenly kids who, you know, 31 million kids were eating school lunch, two thirds of those kids doing so out of economic need, suddenly the school shut down in the spring. And I think a lot of more fortunate parents saw on the news, oh, they're going to get that meal. You know, it, I think it really has shaped our consciousness mm. in a way that is very powerful and positive in terms of going forward and improving school food even further, hopefully making it free for everybody, which has been a long-standing goal of advocates. So that is one hopeful sign, I think. That's great. Yeah, I spoke with some researchers from Johns Hopkins a few months ago who are working on food literacy, basically, and food agency in underprivileged communities. And they said, you know, We think that being in a food desert is the problem, but food desert or not, these kids often don't have running water or stoves. So you can give them all the food and all the knowledge you want, and they still don't have the tools they need to cook something at home. And my heart just breaks for those kids absolutely relying on breakfast and lunch at school. And sometimes supper, sometimes supper too. There are supper programs in a lot of major cities and elsewhere. And right, it is a hugely important safety net. And again, while I do have one chapter on school food and talk about ways in which it falls Mm -hmm. short, it's still a tremendously important source of good, solid nutrition for kids who really need it. Do you know in this, I mean, what what I've noticed at least is with the food having to be so portable now. And so, you know, it's all takeout. 
that actually the quality of nutrition seems to have decreased and the preservatives increased? I certainly have no data on that or anything like that. I'm like you just seeing things anecdotally. You know, of course, for all kinds of obvious reasons, things have become grab and go. And there's a premium, I think, on prepackaged stuff. And so I think for now, I feel like I'm just, you know, all bets are off. We just want to get everyone fed. And then hopefully Mm -hmm. we can get back to when life resumes normal, continue that push toward more scratch cooking in schools, which we really have been seeing. And it's very Mm -hmm. encouraging. And I think that's where we need to be headed. And like I said, for now and beyond, focusing on our family is the first step, of course. Absolutely. How to process the advertisements and like how to see the sneaky kid marketing at all? I have one kind of like very amateur effort in that regard. A few years ago, I think it was like 2013 or something. I did this little video, like a rhyming video that I wound up illustrating because I couldn't afford someone to do it for me. And it's on YouTube and it's actually been viewed like 60,000 times now, I think, which is great. And it's a little video that's meant for young kids, you know, like preschool, early elementary. And it's just a little story to kind of sensitize them to exactly that, like the allure of, of highly processed food, the way it's marketed to you. And is it really in your best interest? And that was a super fun project. And I'm glad I had an outlet to do that. But there are many other programs out there and books that I cite in the book appendix, in Kid Foods Appendix, that also do that. And for older kids as well, because I do think you can't put kids in a box. You can't put blinders on them. We're all susceptible to food marketing. It's very powerful. But to give kids just a taste of here's what's really going on. There are actual studies that show that actually changes their food choices and their eating behavior. So I think that's actually a very promising avenue for advocacy and for sort of public service mm-hmm. campaigns and that kind of thing. Because I think when kids clue in that they're being manipulated, especially older kids, they don't like that. It's the same way that you know we have told them about tobacco companies. Once they know that they're being kind of played, that can actually curb their interest in smoking. So, yeah, let's build really some marketing competency in our kids so that they can exactly see what's coming at them through realistic lenses. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I have some really great books in my book's appendix that if parents are interested, they can you know buy and read with their children. Fantastic. Well, we've kind of had a kind of a beautiful journey here from how you got started and your passion and talking about the problems in the culture and then our practical solutions. I always love to leave parents with like one thing they can do today to feel like they've gotten a win. What would you say would be like step one within your household to change kid food? Well, I mean, to be repetitive, but like one thing you could do today if you've never done it before, you know, just to get kids in the kitchen, you know, and get them helping you, I think is a super important win and not a hard thing to do. That's one place to start for sure. No apologies for repetition on that one. I don't think parents (laughs) can ever hear enough how important it is because sometimes mentally it's hard. And right. Sometimes you just got to get that meal on the table and having your kid there can feel like it's slowing you down. And I totally get that. So it may not have to be today, but on a day that you can you know, spare the mental space to do it, it's such a gift to your kids and really fun. And I'll tell you, my tip that I always tell parents is that the worst time to have kids help in the kitchen is right before dinner. Yeah. If they don't already have skills because you're so stressed out. So right. finding a time like after they are well fed and happy. Yeah. It's ironic. That- like, let's make food after they've just eaten. But it's totally a game changer for just the attitudes that will happen in the kitchen. That is great advice. I had not heard that before. And I think that is excellent advice. Because right, when you're just desperate to get dinner on the table, that's not the time, I think, because 
you're stressed, they're hungry. And yeah, you just you want efficiency at that point. Yep, exactly. So that's when kids can help after they've been trained a few times with the full bellies. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's great advice. Wonderful. Well, the book is Kid Food and it's going to challenge your brain. So happy that Bettina Siegel digs into the research. She digs into the stories. She's going to highlight some school districts that are doing things well, some families that are doing things well. I mean, it takes a village for this. Advocacy can't ever be one person. We all need to be advocating. We don't really order a lot from kids' menus. And that's just one tiny step that my nine-year-old orders a full-size meal because it's generally better food in restaurants. And so it's just a tiny right. boat with our dollars that we can make. And we're, we'll definitely send people over to buy your book, to read the lunch tray blog, and to get involved both at the family level and the societal level and the school level with kid food, because it really is kind of that trifecta to make change. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bettina Siegel. Thank and you so much for having me. This was really a pleasure. Good. And Healthy Parenting Connector listeners, I will see you again next week where we will get you more involved in the kitchen, building connection, confidence, creativity in your kids, and helping you connect with experts in all different niches to help you raise those healthy, independent adults that I know are living in your house. See you next time. Thank you, thank you for listening to the interview. I hope your brain feels fed and your heart feels full. We are all parents on the same journey just trying to raise healthy, independent adults. Next time you think, man, there's no handbook for this job. Now there is. Look up the Healthy Parenting Handbook wherever you listen to your podcast. Please leave a review as that helps other people find the goodness that we share here. And of course, subscribe. You can also look for our shorts as a reel on Instagram at Kids Cook Real Food. Hit that heart and share those with your friends and subscribe to the Healthy Parenting Handbook shorts channel on YouTube.